session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwe, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hambra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. So I usually do the book reviews on Mondays, but I didn't do a show this Monday because we were not doing live programming because of the Martin Luther King holiday. Um, and so we'll be talking about the book tonight and actually the book uh, today. The book for this week that I'll talk about next week is related to race and racism. It is Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. Now, you might remember that name, Angela Saini. I read her book um, end of last year called Inferior. It was looking at how science or how scientists and researchers can come up with ways of showing that or had come up with ways of showing that women were inferior to men based on assumptions that they had, but that a lot of that science is now been proven wrong or shown to have a lot of biases in it. So I think this book is a similar theme, but looking at race and how at times people have done research to try to prove, quote unquote, certain things about the differences between races. But a lot of times that research is filled with biases as well. So looking forward to reading this book and sharing it with you on Monday. The book of the week for this past week that I'll talk about today is Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool by Emily Oster. Um, and I would highly, highly recommend this. I think this is what the third or fourth book of this year, but I'm sure it'll be one of my top 10 favorites um, of this year already because I enjoyed it so much and thought she did a great job, Emily Oster, who is actually an economist. Uh, but looking through the research on different pairing to parenting decisions and things that come up from birth to preschool. Um, she has another book, which I think I will read after enjoying this one so much, called Expecting Better, and that has to deal with the issues and questions and choices that moms and parents have to make during pregnancy. And so this book then continues that starting from birth to preschool. And she does a great job looking at the research, talking about some of the misconceptions that are there, uh, and then really helping you, not telling you exactly what to do, because as she shows you with many of these choices, they aren't often that different when people make certain choices of, let's say, when to potty train, for example, but um, giving you all the data so that you can make the best decision for your family and your child. Uh, and that's also a theme that comes throughout the book, is that it's important to look at what makes sense for you. Because you might look at the research and it says this might be slightly better for your kid, but if doing that's going to drive you crazy, well, then that's going to have a huge negative impact on you and your child. So you have to see what works best for you, your family, your child. These decisions tend to be unique. And another theme that comes up throughout the book 
is related to things like mommy shaming, or I think at one point she calls it the mommy wars, where people online or in person can be very um, judgmental and intense about telling other moms what they're doing wrong. And not just that it's wrong or it could be better this way, but that if they do what they're doing, they actually almost are hurting their child or abusing their child or traumatizing their child or ruining their child's future by doing this. So it's not just a slight uh, preference or saying maybe this could be a better way of doing it. You see a lot of very extreme judgments being passed. Um, and I actually might talk a bit about that in this segment, also in the next one related to being judgmental in general and how um, it might try to serve our own feelings of either inadequacy, insecurity, anxiety, uh, but actually we should be aware of them and, and try to put that judgment away. So this definitely is not a parenting guide that tells you you have to do this, and if you do this, you're a bad mom or dad. Um, it's much more about showing you the data. And as I said, with a lot of these different issues that parents can get so stressed out about, you realize there's not that much to worry about or um, you shouldn't get too fixated on certain things. And that's why in the subtitle it says um, a guide to more relaxed parenting. And so that's why I would highly recommend the book to people who want to have kids or even if you have young kids or are pregnant expecting because it does a good job of alleviating a lot of the anxiety that parents might have. Uh, but she does get into the data for things like sleeping, for example, and how um, sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, or I guess now they're calling it sudden unintended, um, unexpected infant death, is much less likely if your baby sleeps on its back. And so a lot of people know that and they do that. And so you want to make sure you have your baby sleep on its back. Um, but then she talks about things like co-sleeping, having your baby sleep in the bed. And there is a slight increased, increased risk of uh, something bad happening of death, um, which is, of course, huge, but it's very subtle and it can be affected by some factors like if the parents smoke or and if the mom drinks. So she looks at the data and she shows that it's not such, it is higher risk. And so people think higher risk of death, how could I do that? But as she points out, people drive with their babies in the car and that introduces an element of risk because people can unfortunately get into accidents and things can happen. So we do introduce different types of risks, but people can approach them very differently. So um, some families co-sleep and even she talks about how a friend of hers who's actually a doctor understands the risks and co-sleeps with their child and doesn't, you know, understood the risks, but saw that it was the only way to make her child sleep. And that's very important. And so there are a lot of independent decisions that have to be made. And so that theme again comes up throughout the book, even when it comes to things like daycare. Um, it does seem like starting daycare very early can have some negative consequences, but after that, the research doesn't show a lot of negative uh, effects. And so maybe it's okay. Uh, and for me, this was eye-opening, and I've seen some other research on this. Um, of course, I still feel like it's better to be able to have a parent home, but I also know that if families are, are all going to wait until they can definitely have one parent home for a year and a half, two years, three years, most families won't, won't be able to have kids, or many families won't. Um, and also, that's, again, one of those decisions that parents have to make if you feel like as a dad or a mom, if you're staying at home and not working for two years, that's going to make you feel 
angry, resentful, or whatever else you're going to feel about it, if it doesn't feel right to you, then you might be hurting your family more. Again, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to these parenting decisions. It has to make sense for your family logistically, financially, um, and also your own personal well-being. Very often, parents have this feeling that they can't care about what they want or what they want doesn't matter once they have a kid. Now, of course, when you have a child, your priorities have to change and your kids become the priority and you have to make sure you take care of them first. But by taking care of yourself, that's also a very good way to take care of your kids. This is something I experience a lot in my practice where parents will come in, very often mothers, and they're so worried about their teenager, even adult uh, child, and they're clearly very distressed, sometimes anxious, depressed, going through so much themselves. And when you ask them if they'd like to uh, get therapy themselves, because you see they're going through so much, they say, oh, no, 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 not, nothing for me, just for my kids. Everything is for my kids. And I, at times, will spend um, some moments trying to express to them how important it is for them to take care of themselves. If they're not okay, their children get affected. If you don't um, feel good, if you're not happy, if you're not enjoying life, those things are going to affect your kids. So to think that these are separate things uh, is not true. All of this is part of a system. Even the marriage between the two parents is going to have a big impact on the child. So everything that's going on affects them, especially how the parents are doing. And even um, on the chapter on toddler discipline, she mentioned that a big part of toddler discipline or in dealing with kids is parents dealing with their own anger and their own feelings. If you are feeling overwhelmed, if you're stressed, you're more likely to react, you're more likely to act out, or you're more likely to give in. What's very important with all discipline, but especially with toddlers, is that you're consistent. If you don't keep things consistent, or if you teach them that, you know what, if you push hard enough, I'm going to give in. Well, unfortunately, that's just going to reinforce more bad behavior, or reinforce um, things like tantruming or uh, acting out in different ways to get what they want because you're teaching them, if I want something, all I have to do is push hard enough. And so if you as a parent can't handle uh, your own feelings and you can't tolerate what's going on, you won't be able to stay consistent with your child either. So it's so important for parents to take care of themselves overall, but also uh, make sure they recognize the significance in making sure they're okay and the choices they make make sense for them to not just be affected by what other people are doing or even when they look at the research as she shares throughout the book be aware of how different these things are or how sometimes the effects are very small and also that it's not necessarily going to be true for your individual child so some children might respond better to a certain type of parenting that others won't or you might do the same type of parenting to both of your kids and they'll have very different responses to them. That's actually something that happens a lot with parents as they come in and say, we did this with our first child and it worked, and with this one it didn't. Well, not all, all children are not the same in every way. They're going to be different. They're going to act out in different ways, and you have to be prepared for that. So there's lots of different uh, advice or explorations of the data on various things. I also thought it was interesting she talked about um, things like TV and how up until like about two or three, your kids aren't going to learn anything from TV. So sorry, baby Einstein. And she actually has a section on that. So um, this to me is this obsession that parents can have about their kids learning early, becoming successful academically, 
Uh, that's the most important thing. That's the only thing that matters. So I want my kid to learn words and learn things. And there's really no evidence showing that those types of videos help your kids. And if anything, having them watching videos and watching screens might have negative effects for them. So it's probably better not to do that. And rather than have them watch a screen, reading to them, there's a lot of evidence showing that reading to your kids is very important. And when you read to your kids, it's not just about reading the story. It's about interacting with them as they get older, asking them questions, open-ended questions. How do you think she felt? What do you think happened? What do you think is going to happen next? Can you find this? Things that make them get engaged um, in general will be beneficial for them. And so sometimes when we put them in front of a screen, it's a very passive type of interaction, which isn't good for them. And especially before two, doesn't seem to help. Now between um, three to five or a little bit older, there is some evidence that children can benefit from watching certain types of shows. And actually there's research that's been done on shows like Sesame Street, which I remember watching as a child and fortunately still exists, and that that can be beneficial in teaching them some things and that can be helpful for them. So um, that I thought was interesting that you're not going to get your kid to read. It had a part on that, that you know, zero to two-year-olds are not going to read no matter what. And you'll hear stories of someone saying, my 16-month-old was reading books or I don't know, something like that, or reading words, probably not happening. Uh, and it's also probably not that important as she talks about. Um, there's also chapters on picking preschools and how parents can get very fixated on that. I get calls on the show about that. Uh, what's very important is that the way the teachers are interacting with the kids more on an emotional level appears to be more important than things like curriculum, um, which to me makes sense. And in general, I think parents should be focused at all ages, but especially this book is addressing birth to preschool on your child's emotional development and then related to that social as far as interacting with you and other people that should be more the focus than trying to get them to become smarter or to um you know learn some things actually related to being smarter the chapter on breastfeeding talked about how many people think breastfeeding will make your kids have a higher iq uh, but there doesn't seem to be any research supporting that when they looked at it. So I thought that was interesting because I've heard that before myself. And so she addresses a lot of these things that people say or you'll hear people say about what will help their your kids or what will make your kids either become smarter or become stronger, this or that. When it comes to allergies, exposing them earlier does seem to make a positive impact. So what maybe is happening with peanut allergies, for example, is that for a long time, Parents have now been told, or not up until now, to not expose their kids to peanuts. But unfortunately, that may be contributed to peanut allergies. And so it does seem that giving them some small early exposure to different things will reduce the likelihood of allergies, including to things like peanuts. And now doctors are telling parents to actually do that, to have their children get exposed to certain things um, to reduce the likelihood of allergies. So as I mentioned, this book is really great for anyone who has kids, wants to have kids, um, just wants to understand the research related to parenting for decisions you have to make from preschool or sorry, from birth to preschool. Uh, that was Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting from Birth to Preschool by Emily Oster. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back. So in the first segment, talked about the book Crib Sheet by Emily Oster, uh, looking at parenting from birth to preschool. And as I mentioned, something that lots of parents, and especially you might see it more with moms, is feelings of the mommy wars or mommy shaming that happens both online and in person. And I wanted to talk a bit about that, and not just about when it comes to moms, but in general, when we are judgmental about others and things they're doing or not doing, things they say, uh, and where that might be coming from. And as always, one of the aims of what I try to do on the show is to ask us to look at a little bit deeper as to why we do certain things. So we see things happen. Let's try to understand them, of course, in a general way, but then each of us individually trying to ask ourselves, why am I doing, saying, feeling, whatever it is, that I'm going through and to have a better understanding of that. So we see this very strongly when it comes to parenting, where people will say, oh, you shouldn't do this. Or if you uh, don't breastfeed your kids, your kids could have this problem or um, will somehow put other moms down, sometimes passive aggressively. Oh, I could never um, let someone else watch my kid or I could never send my kid to daycare, uh, which is very clearly saying what you're doing is really bad and wrong. What I'm doing is so good and right. Um, I'm good. You're bad. I love my kids. You don't. My kids will be good. Yours won't. All these things that come with that judgment. And that's why I really did enjoy this book is that it showed that with most of the issues and these decisions, of course, they are important. But a lot of times the differences are very minor and it has a lot more to do with what's the right decision for your child and your family and you individually. And you shouldn't feel bad about that. If you want to go back to work and that makes sense for you and that's going to make you okay, then you should do that. If you want to stay at home, that's okay too. But it has to make sense for you. And we hopefully can recognize that and not judge one another for the decisions we make. We don't know what's right for someone else. And so when we look at why we can judge people when it comes to these types of things, very often it's a projection and a reaction to our own feelings of anxiety, uncertainty, insecurity. We're so anxious about doing the right things, about being a good mom or dad, about doing what's best for our children, and really we don't know. We Sometimes people will be very judgmental in a way that makes it seem like they have some absolute truth that they know for sure that by not breastfeeding your child they're going to be dumber uh, when that's not true. And so they talk about it in a very um, extreme way, but it's a reaction to what they're feeling within, which is actually they're not quite sure if what they're doing is right. Or they might feel bad about decisions they've made themselves related to their kids, or they are dealing with that uncertainty and not knowing, and it's a lot easier for us to then put that on someone else and say, you're a bad mom. Because really inside it's this fear that we can have, am I a bad mom? Am I doing something? wrong. So first we have to turn that inwards, not that we should turn that anger inwards, but recognize where it's coming from and have some more compassion for ourselves as parents or people that, okay, I have, I'm not sure about some things. I'm trying my best. There's no guarantee that what I'm doing is right. And I'm sure I've made mistakes, but that's okay. That's the best I can do. I'm a human. I'm a human being that's now being a mom. I'm a human being, a dad. And so, um, that's all I can do is the best. And I know I'll make mistakes. And the good news is even with lots of mistakes, your kids can be okay, just like 
all of us have had parents who've made mistakes, but we're okay. So they can be okay as well. So if we realize that it's actually not just, um, even ask yourself, why would you say something in such a judgmental way to someone about, oh, you don't love your kids or you're doing this to your kids? Uh, we might try to fool ourselves and say, no, it's because I think it's the right thing and I want them to know what's right. But when it comes with this kind of judgment and anger and talking down, that's usually or almost always going to be coming from not a good place, not a place of genuine care and compassion. But the judgment means there's something you're trying to put someone down or put something out from yourself onto someone else to make yourself feel better. And we know this it works by works. I mean, it gives us that immediate feeling. Sometimes we don't feel good about ourselves and we see someone who's doing worse than us. And we're like, okay, so I guess I'm not that bad. And it makes us feel better. So we want to put someone else down to make ourselves feel good. But we know this is not good for us in the long term and has negative consequences in other ways. And so the connection I wanted to make between this was also with something in culture in general. Sometimes you hear about woke culture or being woke, meaning that you're aware of injustices and you're aware of things are happening that are not good and you're calling people out for doing things that are not right whether it comes to sexism racism or whatever other issue we're talking about and i see a similar pattern in what's happening there because when you i think it's very important let me make this first point that we are aware and vigilant about injustices things that are happening in the world that we've accepted but that are unfair, unjust, um, whether it's systematic, whether it's individual behaviors, we want to be aware of them and be vigilant. That I think is important. So I don't want to say it's not important to care about these things or these things aren't important at all. They're very important. But the way we respond is very, very important as well. And so what you often will see is that people are almost looking for a reason to get mad at someone, not to genuinely try to bring about progress, but just to judge and bring someone else down and make them feel bad. And to me, this again has to come from a reaction within ourselves that we might recognize, uh, as is the truth for everyone, that we have some biases within ourselves. We might have some negative feelings about some group or realize we have a hard time uh, coming to terms with certain things. And so because we all have these internal struggles that we deal with and recognize that, yes, we all are racist to some degree, meaning that we all have certain thoughts or beliefs about races of, or different groups that are just automatic. And so because we have those and we don't feel good about them, we project these on to someone else, looking for someone else to call racist or sexist or doing the bad things or being a bad person. And so... By doing that, it's in a way we're almost trying to get rid of that feeling within ourselves and dump it onto them. I feel insecure or I'm not sure if I'm being a good person. Let me dump that on you and tell you how bad of a person you are. And then tell myself that it's because I'm so progressive and so woke and so, um, you know, forward thinking that I'm noticing these things that you're doing and how bad it is. I'm going to judge you about how bad you are and that judgment and how harshly I'm judging you actually is an indication of how progressive and how forward thinking I am because other people might not think it's that big of a deal because they don't realize how bad what you're doing really is. But I'm so far ahead. I'm so woke that I'm even more angered by what you're doing. But very often it's actually because we're trying to make ourselves feel better that we're reacting in this way. 
So it's very important for us to be mindful of what we do and what others are doing, but also we have to be aware of why we might be reacting to certain people in certain ways. And unfortunately, what happens when we keep acting in this way, when it becomes part of the culture to just, sometimes they call it call-out culture um, or cancel culture, where we're just looking for a reason to tell why someone is bad or wrong, uh, maybe something they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, we're going to judge them for what they did and say now they're a bad person or we should completely stop supporting that person. It has lots of negative effects that people can't communicate, they can't talk to one another, they can't be themselves, they're afraid to share certain ideas or certain, certain thoughts because they think they might get called out for it. If they have a certain opinion that might be different from the norm, or they're not sure even about it. They want to have a conversation about something. It's like, no, you have to already see it this way. You have to see it this way 100%. Or you're a racist, a sexist, a bigot, a bad person, someone who wants to promote injustice and bad things, when that's not necessarily the case. We have to have the space to talk about various important issues. And they're not just these simplified black and white uh, binary types of things where it's like, okay, either you see it this way only always, or you have, to, or you're against it and you're on the other side. We need to create more of that space. But what I recognize, because you can feel it in the way that people respond at times, is that it's not about what's happening. It's about, I want to get upset about something. I want to react to something. And you find this in different ways with different people. Sometimes it has to do with authority. Sometimes it has to do with um, a certain group, or sometimes it has to do with uh, various different things that might be coming from someone's own past or someone's own issues. So always ask yourself, okay, I'm having such a strong reaction to this. Let me try to understand what's going on. It could be you're very upset about the actual thing. So I'm not saying if you're outraged by some kind of injustice, your outrage has to be because of your own issues. Of course not. Sometimes some very horrible things happen and it makes sense that you're upset. But at times, if we really take a closer look, we'll see that it might be that our reaction feels stronger than it needs to be. This is similar to if someone says something that's slightly mean, but you have a huge reaction, you might recognize that what they said was mean, but if it really impacts you so deeply, you might even yourself be aware, okay, I'm kind of shocked at how deeply I'm impacted by that insult or that mean thing that person said. It doesn't mean what they said was right or good or was okay. And even you could let them know you didn't like it, but you might realize I'm having such a strong reaction. If you look a little deeper, you might see because it tapped on some sensitive spot you have about yourself, an insecurity or something you don't feel good about, or it triggered some feeling or some relationship from the past, and so you're having such a strong reaction. And you can actually recognize that it's not just about in the moment. And so a lot of the outrage and the uh, call-out culture that you, we see is people just responding in a way that has to do with other things, I think a reflection of our own insecurities about how we feel inside that we're dumping on people on the outside. And so lastly, I'll say again, this is not to say that we shouldn't be mindful of what people are saying, mindful of what we're saying, calling each other out when things happen or things are being done that are hurtful. But as always, we want to take a closer look at why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Let me make sure it's not about me. By judging this person, what am I trying to accomplish? Do I think it really has a benefit? In general, being judgmental just creates more division and doesn't help 
the individual you're talking to. Um, and really, even when people usually call someone out, they're not talking to that person. They're, they want everyone else to see how woke and uh, forward-thinking they are, when really it's not about that. And so uh, people are looking for a reason to find a flaw in someone. We should look for what's going on, look for the injustices, but also be aware of why we might re be reacting the way that we are. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, talked about the book Crib Sheet by Emily Oster. Highly recommend it to anyone having kids or who wants to have children. And I wanted to focus a bit about what she talked about, but extend it related to what she calls uh, toddler discipline, um, but how you discipline in general and what we're, we're doing. And she does a very good job of talking about really taking a step back and asking, what are you trying to accomplish when you are doing discipline? Because I think people lose sight of that at times. And so she, uh, this is from the book, she says, before even getting into the evidence, so it's about discipline, it's worth stepping back and thinking about why we want to discipline our kids. What are we trying to accomplish? I think the answer is the same as what we are trying to do with all our other parenting choices. We are trying to raise happy, nice, productive adults. And so it's more to keep that in mind because what I've noticed when it comes to discipline in general or when you see people's reactions to discipline, it seems that we're more just focused on punishment and that if someone does something not good, they have to be punished. And we're almost obsessed with this, even in a societal way. And I know it could be different with adults, although um, I think some of the same principles apply. But especially with kids, oh, your kid did something wrong. And so, yo, you have to hit them or you have to spank them or you have to this. Sometimes, of course, they'll talk about how that's the only way they'll learn to do something or to not do something. Um, but also at times it just feels like it's, well, you did something wrong. You should get something bad happening to you. The punishment should happen. But as she points out, that's not what we're trying to do. And we have to recognize our own philosophy when it comes to these things, when it comes to discipline, when it comes to dealing with right and wrong and interacting with our child and trying to teach them what's right and wrong, that if we're just focusing on punishment, that's not really where our mindset should be. What are you trying to teach your child? Um, that if you do something wrong, something bad happens to you. Consequences is different from punishment. Consequences helps them learn about reality. If you don't do your homework, you might get a bad grade or get some something happens at school. Or if you uh, don't clean your room, you might not be able to find things in your room, for example. Consequences happen in their life, that can be good. But punishment, um, first of all, doesn't seem to work. And second of all, just shows them that bad things happen to you when you don't do something good or that someone who's stronger than you is going to hurt you when you do, don't do something good. And she talks about in the book how spanking, um, there's a lot of research showing that short-term and long-term, it has negative consequences and doesn't work. When you punish, all you're teaching someone is to avoid doing something to avoid the punishment or to do something to avoid the punishment. Not that that thing is good. So the example I regularly use with um, parents is if you tell your kid, uh, you know, I want you to get an eight tomorrow. And if you don't, I'll hit you and you, 
come home, it might work in the short term, but just to avoid punishment. And now guess what? When they're older and they don't care about your punishment or they don't have to worry about your punishment, they won't have that feeling that doing the right thing is good because it's the right thing to do. So the mindset that we have, which is the old mindset of punishment, scaring someone, making someone afraid of a consequence, is how you teach them to do the right things, doesn't work. And what I think is even funnier is when parents hit their kid for hitting their other sibling. So um, you know, the brother hits his little sister and the dad hits the boy to teach him that hitting is wrong. And sometimes the irony might be lost on the parent that what are you doing here exactly? How is hitting your child showing him that hitting is wrong? You're actually doing exactly the opposite. You're reinforcing the idea that when you're bigger than someone and you don't like something or you want them to do something, you hit them. So if anything, you're showing them exactly the opposite lesson. If you're saying hitting is bad, how can you hit them to show them that hitting is bad? So um, it's always becoming aware of what are we trying to do? Punishment is not the goal. It's not to make sure every bad deed, every mistake gets punished. As she puts it, we're trying to raise happy, nice, productive adults. We're trying to help them grow, help them develop into someone who can make good choices for themselves. We're not going to be there to punish them. And a lot of times no one will be there to punish them when they're making decisions. We want them to make the right choices, realizing what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad for them. Not because if I don't do this, I'm going to get hit. Or if I do this, I'm going to get hit. But actually, I think this is good to do. And yes, at times we'll need some support. We're always going to make mistakes. Um, That's just part of life. And even as adults, each and every one of us every day does some things wrong or makes mistakes. Or sometimes I think about when parents will say, well, you have to hit your kids to teach them something or punish them really bad to teach them something. But if you're at work and you do something wrong, if your boss said, I'm going to spank you or I'm going to hit you um, because you have to learn, you would never think that's okay. Somehow we think it's okay with our kids. Sometimes people will say, well, kids won't understand if you tell them. um, So you have to hit them because that's the only way they will understand. But when people have a hard time stopping a behavior, it's not just about understanding. Each and every one of us, again, makes the same types of mistakes very often. If you have an issue with um, drinking or smoking or eating or uh, the ways you interact with certain people, you tend to keep making the same bad decisions. Or you tell yourself, okay, I need to go exercise and you can't, or I need to do this paperwork and you don't, or I need to Um, you know, call this person and you don't call them. All these things that you repeatedly do, it's not just because you don't know they're wrong or you need a punishment. It's because it's hard to get ourselves to always do the right thing. That's part of being human. We're not going to always do the right thing. And that's something that parents will often tell me, say, well, like he knows it's wrong to do this and he did it again the next day. And I get it that it could be frustrating, or especially you've seen him do it the right way. I understand. So you know he can. But to have this expectation that he should never do it wrong again because now he knows, take a look at yourself. How many things do you tell yourself to do or not to do that you have a hard time following through with whatever it is that you already know? All of us know so many things about healthy choices to make with what we eat and what we do every day, better ways to use our time, things we can do to help ourselves financially, personally in so many ways and we don't do them yet somehow when our kids are doing something or not doing something we think we have to punish them and show them how bad and wrong they are we can't believe that they've done that 
So when we have a more humanistic approach and seeing our child as a full person, just like us who makes mistakes, then we can recognize that we don't need to just punish them or make them feel bad for not doing the right thing. This is not the way to develop a healthy, happy human being. It's just going to create someone who is going to not like authority, have a bad relationship with you, and just realize that the goal of life is to avoid punishment. How can I get away from facing consequences? Not, I should do the right things because they are good themselves, but I don't want to get hurt. And as always, we have to look back to our own experiences and our own childhood. Very often when people talk about spanking, they say, well, we went through it, so kids now should get it too. Um, and I think I've seen some quotes somewhere that says, you know, if you think you were abused and you turned out okay, so now kids should get abused now, you didn't turn out okay. If you think it's okay to hit little kids because it happened to you, um, clearly you're not realizing something bad that happened. And that means you haven't dealt with your own wounds and your own anger about what's happened. If something unfair happened to you and you really feel it was unfair and you understand it, you don't want that same unfair thing to happen to other people. This is actually why many times people become activists in different uh, areas as something happened to them. Or very sadly, for example, parents um, will have something happen to their child. Their child dies from some reason that might have been avoidable. And now one of the ways they're trying to cope with what they're going through and one of the things they do to get meaning out of it, which is very good, is they're trying to make sure no other parents have to deal with the pain they dealt with. No one else has to go through that. That's the more healthy approach to some kind of pain that we've gone through. Not, well, I've suffered, so you should suffer too. Clearly, we're still stuck in the suffering if that's what we're, we're uh, doing. Or clearly, we haven't come to terms with it or we're still so angry or hurt that we want other people to feel that pain as well. So the idea that we went through something, so kids now should go through it to me, does not make any sense. If you went through something and it was good, great. There was also lead paint and asbestos in the houses when maybe you were a kid or grand, your grandparents or whoever it was were kids. We don't say, well, they went through it and they're dealing with whatever it is, so now we should, of course not. We always want to improve on how we are doing things. So I think a lot of people, although we've grown up into adults, they still are dealing with this childlike feeling of, well, I had to go through this and now other kids should have to go through it as well. So the focus is on how to raise someone into a healthy, happy individual who can make good choices. So even when we're uh, doing certain things around the house, this is actually an interesting one. Often parents will use chores as a type of punishment. Oh, you have to wash the dishes because it's work and it's bad, so that's a way of punishing you or making you do something bad. I think really the reality of this and framing it in a different way is you are a member of this house and we all together get to keep the house running in a good way and make sure everything is taken care of and we all contribute in different ways. Contributing to helping the home is not a punishment or something bad. It can actually be something good. Now, I know we think of it as housework and oftentimes parents and adults will fight over who does what and who's doing more of the work, which I understand there isn't, it's not always just pleasant things, but it's reframing it to recognize we're not trying to teach our kids that doing things to help is actually a bad thing or a punishment. It's actually even something they can feel good about that I get to help out. And actually people usually do when you frame it that way. If you tell a child, I want you to help me in the class today, 
they usually get very excited. They like the feeling of I'm going to be helpful. That shows that I'm strong. It shows that I'm good, which is how we all feel. When we help someone else, we actually tend to feel better because we recognize I see my own strength. I see my own goodness when I'm able to help someone else. So it's not some kind of punishment or something bad. It's actually a blessing, something I can feel good about. And so we can show them that you can do things in the home, but you don't have to feel bad about it. And oftentimes parents think it's mean to the kids to have them do work in the home. But if you're punishing them by saying it's you have to do the dishes because you're a bad boy or a bad girl, that's different than can you help mommy or help daddy do this? Let's work on this together. Very often they actually will enjoy that. And so we have to be aware of our own um, ideas about certain things. We think washing the dishes is something painful and bad. And so we assume that it's painful and bad for our child. So we try to either punish them by using that, or we think I'm being such a good mom or dad, I'll never make them have to work in that way. But actually we want to help them do certain things. We want to help them take care of the home, help them take care of themselves. Doing their homework, yes, it's not the most fun thing at times. They might not always like it, but we show them that it could be good for them to do the work, to learn things, that learning can actually be fun, that it's such a good feeling when you finish your work and you get to close it and put it in your backpack and the next day you show up and have your homework done. We show them why it's good to do certain things and we shift our focus from showing them the goodness of good behavior rather than just the badness of bad behavior and making sure that bad behavior gets punished. The response we very often have, as we do with adults, when something happens is, well, they did something bad, we have to punish them. Something really bad has to happen to them. But not realizing how we actually sometimes all pay the price when we do that, by punishing your child or even the ways our system of justice system or punishment and corrections is right now, we actually all pay the price by hurting people more rather than recognizing we can try to correct what has happened or make things better. And especially with your children, your mindset should always be, how can I help my child learn from what's happened? Not learned as in punish them so they learn how bad they were, but learn the consequences of what they did. Learn what they can do better next time to grow from this experience rather than just make them feel bad for what they've done. All right, we've reached another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, this segment, I wanted to talk about um, a concept or an idea that comes up often with parents looking at their kids and even us individually looking at ourselves, and that's the idea of being lazy. Now, some people would even argue laziness doesn't exist or it's not a thing. Uh, depends on how you define it. But I do think that very often lazy is a word that comes up when other things are going on other than just being lazy. And lazy usually doesn't motivate anyone anyway and comes off very judgmental. So when you tell someone they're being lazy, more often than not, that's not going to lead to them changing their behavior. Now, laziness at times is a word that we use when someone is depressed or anxious. Very often people who are depressed, of course, their motivation is less, their energy level is less, uh, their confidence in themselves is less. And so as a result, they appear very lazy. So at times, I, I, I might touch on this at the end, depending on the timing, um, we do 
remove the responsibility from ourselves for our own life. And that can also make us lazy. So we might think it's not up to us anymore. That can be in a way a type of laziness, but that itself um, might come from somewhere else. But I do want to talk about the ways where people might appear lazy to us or to ourselves. And really we have to see what else is going on. So if you're depressed, you will look lazy to anyone seeing you. You didn't get out of bed all day. Of course that looks lazy, right? How could someone um, not see that and think you're being very active? But it doesn't mean that you're just being lazy because of some kind of choice that you have made to be lazy or that you don't care. Very often when you talk to people who are depressed, they'll tell you, I want to get out of bed so bad. I know I need to get out of bed. I judge myself for not doing anything all day but I just feel like I can't get myself to do anything. And then that makes me feel worse. And so this is part of the unfortunate downward spiral that depression can have. You stay home because you don't feel very good. You don't have a lot of energy, but then you feel bad that you stayed home all day and now you feel even worse. And now you don't want to see anyone because you don't really feel good about yourself. You haven't showered. You're not really feeling good about your life or even what you did. So now you don't want to see someone to talk about your day. And so you isolate yourself even more. And so then when we're isolated, when we're alone, we feel even worse again. And now it gets even harder. Now the next day, it's even harder to go see someone because we feel even worse about ourselves and so on and so forth. And this is unfortunately one of the dangerous things about depression is that it in a way feeds on itself and it can become stronger and stronger. And so when we add on to that a judgment of I'm so lazy or people around you telling you you're so lazy you didn't do anything today or this week, that'll make us feel even worse. Yeah, I'm just a lazy loser who does nothing and I'm never going to amount to anything because of this laziness. And sometimes it's used as a way of describing our character. You're a lazy person. But if you're depressed, you're going to look very lazy. But it's not about some lazy term of a judgmental work ethic type of an issue it's actually the depression that is showing up as laziness and so another way that laziness appears is anxiety if you are an anxious person this can make you feel very uh, or look very lazy because you don't take action when you are anxious you have something we can sometimes call uh, paralysis analysis you keep thinking about things or trying to figure out things and you don't take any action because you're not not sure which one is right and so this also relates to procrastination uh, very often people think oh procrastination is because you're lazy or i don't have good time management or uh, work ethic and those obviously can play a part but very often what's happening with someone who is anxious and coming off lazy and procrastinating is the anxiety is getting in the way. So a good example of this is if you are very anxious and have perfectionistic tendencies, if you want to write a paper, I even remember doing this at times myself, but the more anxiety you have, the more perfectionism, the harder it is. You open up your Microsoft Word document and you're looking at a blank page and now you're trying to think, okay, how do I start this paper? How do I start this essay? And then you just see the blinking cursor on the screen and you get nervous. Okay, what do I write? Should I start it this way? Should I do that? Is that right? And what people do, then they go to something else. If they're online, they go to Facebook, Instagram, they check their phone, they walk away from the computer, they clean up or do something in the house. But it's the anxiety that's building up 
of how to do this right, of being afraid of getting it wrong, of being afraid of doing a bad job and all the things that comes with that, that makes the person not be able to act or get too afraid to get started. So they find a way to distract themselves. And unfortunately, this is how procrastination in a way works. By works, I mean, um, it, it doesn't actually lead to something productive, but um, it makes us feel better is that if you're feeling very anxious about starting the essay, you have a buildup of anxiety. Okay, what do I do? What am I? What if I get a bad grade? What if the professor doesn't like it? All those things start building up. Then you switch to Instagram, and immediately you feel a sense of relief. You're no longer thinking about the essay. You're not worried about it. You're just looking at your feed and looking at pictures of people and liking things and searching for things. And the relief, unfortunately, feels very good in that moment and reinforces itself. Now, the next time you go back again, okay, let me start the paper. I wasted 30 minutes. Oh, I can't believe I wasted 30 minutes. Now you're maybe more stressed. So the pressure feels even more. You feel worse about yourself. And now you're looking at the paper again or the blank screen and you don't know how to start. And again, you turn towards some type of distraction. So we see that I'm not saying it's an excuse. You can't write the paper. But what appears to be just laziness, oh, you're lazy, you don't want to do any work, it's actually much more about the anxiety. And so what's actually interesting is when people think someone is lazy, we think, oh, you don't care enough. You don't care. Let me tell you about how important school is. Let me tell you about how important it is to get a degree or to do this or to do that. And so they start to put this pressure on you. You don't understand how important this is. And so you're wasting your time on Facebook and Instagram when you need to be focusing on school. And yes, it is important to do that in how you live your life and what you're doing. But actually what we're seeing is very often this person who is anxious, it's actually in a way they care too much. They're putting too much pressure on what am I going to write? What grade am I going to get on this? Am I going to write a good essay that my professor is going to like that actually is freezing them? So when we don't know what's going on, if we just look at someone and we think they're being lazy, we think what they need is a push. They need to learn about how important it is what they are not doing. And so we actually put more pressure on them. And so this is why I usually tell parents what I observe is that rather than pushing your child forward, you push them down by making them feel worse about themselves, by thinking you have to judge them or lecture them or tell them about other people who are doing better or all the things they're doing wrong. We think we're pushing them forward, but really usually you just push them down or you're adding more weight on what's already hard for them to carry. And they do less rather than more with your pushing. Even on top of that, you could create a power struggle where they feel like, well, if I do this work, um, I'm doing it for my parents. So there's a way of kind of saying, screw you by not doing the work. So they might actually even resist getting into the work even more. So until we recognize or understand why our child, or even if it's ourself, is having a hard time doing something, the way we're going to interact with them will be very different or might actually be hurtful compared to what they might actually need. If someone is feeling anxious about writing an essay, rather than being convinced about how much of a waste of time Instagram is and how important their schoolwork is, they need help in dealing with that anxiety and recognizing, okay, so you're anxious about writing a perfect paper. Okay, we have to look at that perfectionism and realize that's getting in the way. You're not going to write a perfect essay. Not only are you not going to write a perfect essay, your first draft is probably not even going to be very good. 
And so we can take some of that um, pressure off. You're not going to write a good, the first draft is a first draft for a reason. It's going to have problems. It's going to have issues. You just have to get something on the paper, something to work with. I even remember sometimes because I would get fixated on writing the first sentence or how the essay would start, I would sometimes just start in the middle of the essay and start writing some things, some of the ideas, and then let it flesh out around that central part of the essay. And that made it a little bit easier for me to deal with some of that um, anxiety that might start from getting the paper going or what to put for that first sentence. So when we, as always, when we don't know the underlying cause of what's going on, it's a lot harder for us to fix it or to deal with it or even be supportive. If we think the problem is that our kid is not trying hard enough because they have no work ethic, then we're going to give them a one-hour lecture about how hard work and consistency is important when really that's not the issue at all. That might not be what they're dealing with. So rather than just focusing on, okay, work is not getting done, they're lazy, we want to try to understand what's actually going on for them. If they're anxious, what they need is to try to understand they're putting too much pressure on things. They're thinking sometimes this essay is going to determine their life. What if I do bad on this? I get a bad grade. Then I don't do this and I don't do that. It's that catastrophizing and going too far forward and putting too much pressure on this moment that's actually getting in the way. Not that they don't care enough. And then coming back to depression, when your child is feeling depressed another problem is they don't feel very good about themselves or if you're the one that's depressed so now if you have to do something you don't have a lot of belief in yourself which is sad but that's the truth if you need to write that essay again since i'm using that example and you don't really feel good about yourself you don't think what you're going to write is good you don't think the ideas you're going to come up with are good ideas and so you don't want to even write something like this is going to be bad. What I write won't be good. I'm going to get a bad grade because we know when we're depressed, we see everything through this negative lens. We're bad. The world is bad. The future is going to be bad. So what's the point of writing this essay? And it's hard for me to even get started. It's hard for me to have that energy to even get going. So I've seen this happen with lots of, especially teenagers and dealing with their parents that they think that their depression or their anxiety is an excuse. And can it be? Of course, sometimes people will say things to get out of doing something. We know that does happen. So I'm not saying that's not possible. But be aware of the possibility that really if they are depressed and they're anxious, it's not just about snap out of it or get yourself to do some work. We have to actually realize there is a real problem there. And if we just try to call our kid lazy or call ourselves lazy, and think that's going to fix the problem, I can assure you it almost never will. By just telling someone they're bad, they don't start to become good. When you tell someone they're bad, they feel worse about themselves and they get more angry and hurt towards you. They're not going to get motivated and wake up. So we always have to try to understand a little bit more deeply, as I've said with ourselves, but when you look at someone, okay, my child hasn't done his homework in a week. What's going on? And don't just go to the simple answer of laziness and work ethic. Try to see what else might be happening. Are they okay? Are they anxious or are they depressed or is there something else going on? Maybe they're really upset about something. Whatever it might be, be aware that there might be more to it than just that word lazy and that we have to think a little bit more about how we can help when we see that the problem is more complicated than just, okay, you need a schedule. Scheduling is very important. Time management is a real thing. We do need to be aware of how we structure our time. Sometimes you start going online, you don't realize you've been on there too long or 
someone plays video games, they don't stop, and now they have to start their homework at 10, 30, 11 at night. That could be a problem, of course. But also they might be doing that for some reasons too. So these things aren't completely mutually exclusive. But yeah, we have to be aware of time management issues and how we can help them. But if we're not aware of an underlying anxiety issue or depression that's leading to what we're just observing as lazy behavior, we won't really be able to help our kids. And of course, as I mentioned, even with ourselves, to not have that judgmental attitude towards ourselves. Usually we're not just lazy. Something is getting in the way. Why aren't you applying for that job? Because you're lazy? No, maybe you're afraid of rejection. Maybe you're afraid you get the job and now you have to work and you're maybe not sure you can handle it. There could be other things going on, but usually it's not just about laziness. Usually avoidance comes from anxiety and sometimes a lack of motivation can be caused from depression. Both of those things can affect how we work, if we work, or if we even try to do something. And so becoming more aware more deeply about that rather than just using that word lazy as a catch-all can be very important. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I wanted to talk in this segment about uh, relationships and one aspect of relationships that comes up um, in a lot of therapy situations, which is acknowledgement of doing something. And I talk about this topic a lot about apologies and how we can apologize better. But the first step is even just being able to apologize. And so uh, very often when a couple comes into therapy, the first session is mostly about showing why or they, this, that's their attempt to show how they're the better partner and their husband, their wife, boyfriend, girlfriend is the bad guy. So I often will joke and say I should wear a robe like a judge because I feel like they want me to give a verdict of who's a good wife, good husband, or who has been wronged more. But usually uh, this is not going to get us very far. We have to actually, rather than turn, we should turn that finger from pointing from our partner towards ourselves. What can I do to make the relationship better? And what also comes with that is what have I done wrong? And many people have a very hard time accepting that they've done something wrong, especially if they put so much pressure on being um, a good mom, a good dad, a good a husband or wife, that they can accept that maybe they've done something wrong at all. So very often people will come in and say, I want my husband or wife to come with me, but they say, I have no problems. You are the one with the problem. So you should go to therapy and then our problems will be okay. You're the, the one who has the issues when really both people are contributing to it. So this is where the idea of contribution comes into play, recognizing that whatever is going on, rather than focusing on blame, which means we're saying, who's more wrong? Who did the bad thing? And it also focuses on judgment, and it also focuses on the past. Um, this concept is discussed in the book, Difficult Conversations. I forget the author's names off the top of my head, but it's three authors, um, which I, I really enjoyed that book that looked at how we should see the problems that we're facing, not focusing on blame, but rather on contribution. Because again, blame focuses on judgment it focuses on the past and it doesn't really help us move forward it doesn't really get us anywhere but if we focus on contribution 
And it might seem like it's just semantic or a choice of words, but it has a different mindset and a different approach. Contribution means even if I don't like what's happened or what you did, I recognize I've contributed to this problem. And very often people will say, wait, how did I contribute to this? My partner has done this 10 times and I don't like it. Well, very often you'll realize that you didn't bring it up those first nine times and now you're bringing it up the 10th time. So no, you didn't contribute to the behavior. Your partner did something. But the fact that it's become a problem or become such a problem has to do with the fact that you didn't say anything and you have to take some responsibility for that. If you don't say anything nine times, 10 times, then how does your partner know you don't like it? How do you, uh, how are you communicating to them? That's your responsibility. What your partner did, that's their responsibility. That's their contribution. But how you respond is up to you if you say something or not. And so related to that, actually a quick note on this idea that people sometimes have of, oh, I'm so easygoing. Um, I don't want to create problems. And they think they should get some kind of credit for their patience and their willpower in taking what their partner gives them. Um, but no, that's not true because a few things. One is usually you're building up a lot of anger and resentment. So it's not that nothing is happening. If nothing is happening, then you wouldn't be bringing it up if you really just accept it and were okay with it. The second thing is by not sharing your feelings with your partner that you're not okay, you're actually taking away from the potential closeness and opportunities for closeness you have with your partner, and you're not sharing your feelings with them. You're not letting them know, giving them the opportunity to do something better. So uh, I really try to fight against this notion that um, you need to pick your battles. Of course, in some ways, we have to sometimes hold some things in for moments, and we can't share every single thing, every moment, every time, all the time. But in general, we should strive to be more open and express when we don't like something rather than holding it in. So to think that we're so good because I never tell my partner they did something I didn't like, that's not good. That's actually not helpful to you or your partner or the relationship. And we need to change that and recognize that actually it's not a good thing. Very often people who are that way, they might not recognize it as much as they think I'm just doing this because I'm selfless, because I care about my partner and our relationship. It's actually they like being a person who doesn't get upset. They are the person who doesn't get affected by things. And actually, there's this feeling of superiority they get from not getting upset by anything or saying they don't get upset by anything. Oh, nothing bothers me. I'm so strong or I don't need anything. I'm so strong. So this is actually a type of narcissism. Um, sometimes we think of narcissism as the selfish person in the sense that they get all these things they want and they tell everyone to tell them how great they are. But there's different versions of narcissism or different ways it's expressed. And this is another one. It's kind of like the martyr that I'm so superior to others because I don't need anything. I never want anything. I never ask for anything. I'm so good because I never have any of these needs or wants or desires. And that's just how strong I am. That's how good I am. So it's not just that the person says or doesn't complain about things because of how strong they are. Or they love their partner. It's actually because they get something out of it. I get to be the strong one who never has any issues. That's me. And so we have to recognize that, that I'm not 
doing something good. I'm not doing something helpful. I'm doing this actually in a selfish way. I want to feel good about myself to never complain about anything. Now, usually that doesn't last forever. And eventually the person will blow up and explode and then talk about all the things they've taken and for how long they've taken it and how bad it's been and how they can't believe how their partner has treated them and all this, that, and the other. And so of course it backfires and becomes even worse. And now there's this huge fight and blow up. And again, you didn't even give your partner the chance to recognize that they could have made things better. If you said the first time, you know what, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good to me. Or you hurt my feelings when you did this. Or I prefer if we do it this way. You would give your partner and the relationship a chance to have something better happen. But by not saying anything, you've taken away that opportunity. And so this can be a good way of framing when we bring something up to our partner. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, if we say something, we're hurting our partner, we're complaining, we're making them feel bad. But really... If we recognize I'm not saying this to my partner to hurt their feelings or to make them feel bad, I'm saying this actually to give us and to give them an opportunity to make things better in our relationship, to get closer. So when I share with you what you said to me upset me, didn't feel good, rather than just focusing on the I'm telling you you did something wrong or did something bad, which is where a lot of us go and a lot of us even present it in that way. If you can recognize, oh, this is an opportunity for me to learn about my partner and to make things better. I said something they didn't like. Oh, what didn't they like about that? Maybe they're sensitive about this or maybe I wasn't aware of how I said the thing that I said. This gives us an opportunity to grow. So as it is with any kind of feedback, when you get feedback, you can grow. So if you go to a coach that wants to help you play tennis, Obviously, if you are never wanting to hear anything negative, you can say, don't tell me anything I'm doing wrong. Just I'm going to keep hitting the ball and telling me how, tell me how good I am. But you're not going to get better. You need someone to tell you you're doing this wrong. This could be better. Yes, they might even give you some compliments. You're doing this really well. But if they don't tell you what's wrong, you can never get better. And so our relationships are the same way. We can't assume that one, we're good at relationships in general, so we're just going to get everything right. And two that we're going to know our partner very well and our relationship is already done growing and becoming better. It has to have some of these growing pains that are constantly happening throughout the relationship. You have to bring up things. And so I sometimes joke about this, but if I hear a couple uh, hasn't had a fight and they've been together for a whole year, I say, I'm sorry to hear that because it tells me either one, they're not that close because if you're not that close. You might not create really any conflict or anything. Or two, and very likely one or both of them is holding some things in. They're not being open with each other. There's no way you can be with someone one year and no fights come up, no arguments, no disagreements. You might just be nice to each other. You might just be uh, staying in a place of distance where something comes up. You say, oh, it's not a big deal. And then it starts to become the culture of your relationship. We don't bring things up. We're afraid to bring things up or I'm not allowed to complain because my partner never complains and we just hold things in. So recognizing that actually bringing something up is not an insult. It's actually providing an opportunity for your partner and for the relationship. You're not trying to say something mean. And actually the way I present it to some couples sometimes is because they'll say, you know, he did something I didn't like or if she did something I didn't like. But if I bring it up, it's going to hurt their feelings. I don't want to hurt him. So that's why I don't bring it up. 
And so this is again where we have to change that mindset. First of all, we have to be able to withstand hearing some things at times that doesn't feel good. Sometimes we do things wrong and we need to be able to hear it, but we have to change our own mindset. I'm not telling you this when you tell your partner they did something you didn't like. You're not telling them this to hurt them, to make them feel bad, to make them feel bad about themselves, to make them have a bad day. That's not your intention. You're actually telling them this not because you don't love them. You're actually telling them this because you love them so much and you love your relationship so much, and that's so important to you, that you want to make sure you guys deal with the issues, that you guys talk about things, that you help the relationship grow to stay healthy and to keep getting better. It's not coming from a place of wanting to hurt. And that's where you have to really ask yourself, am I just trying to insult my partner to hurt them, to make them feel bad? In a way, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Am I just trying to judge them to make myself feel better, to say, oh, look, you did this wrong again, and I'm such a good husband or a good wife. I don't do those things, or I don't hurt you in that way. If that's your intention, you really have to try to understand what's going on there. Why are you in that kind of headspace to want to do that? But really, if you're coming from the space of, I want things to be better between us, that's actually an act of love. And so it might sound surprising or odd, to say that complaining to your partner or sharing something that hurts your feelings or upset you is actually an act of love, but it very much is because you're saying, I love you enough, I love us enough to talk about this, to bring this up, to not just hold it in. And so we have to shift from this mindset that, oh, I'm such a good partner, I hold things in. I don't tell my partner it upset him or it upset me because I don't want to bother them. That's not actually a sign of love. Yes, if your partner is right about to walk into an important meeting, you maybe hold it in until after their meeting. So there are moments, so I'm not just saying you react and not recognize the moment and certain things, but overall, the mindset that by holding something in is an act of love, usually and almost always it's not. And to me, it's actually an act of love to share what you don't like or what you dislike. And so people, when they hear this, they might think, well, I don't know if my partner can take it. But to me, that itself is a red flag. If you're afraid to tell your partner you're upset, something is wrong there. If you can't tell your partner you're hurt, either they can't handle any kind of negative feedback, um, either you guys aren't very close, or either they're a very angry person who can't take anything. Sometimes people are afraid to tell someone they're upset because they think the person's going to react negatively. Or early on in a relationship, they think, well, what if I tell him, what if I tell her and they break up with me? Well, if you're in a type of relationship that you can't express your feelings, that you can't express what you like and you don't like, what kind of relationship do you have? And what that probably is telling you that you're more attached to the idea of being with this person, having a relationship where you're afraid to be alone more than you're actually trying to create a good, healthy, happy relationship for yourself and the person that you're with. You aren't actually in it for the right reasons. You are not trying to create something good. You don't want to be alone. And that's very different from the person who's saying, I don't want to say this because the timing is not right. So we have to really ask ourselves because we're so good at tricking ourselves. Well, you know what? Uh, today she has some, you know, this going on, so I shouldn't tell her anyway. Or, oh, you know, I don't want to ruin her day because I love her so much. That's just you're tricking yourself. You're not actually doing it for those reasons. It's because you're afraid to bring it up. You want to be the one who never complains or you're afraid of their reaction. If you're walking on eggshells with your partner, that's a huge problem. You need to be able to be open with them. You need to be able to share things 
with them. And even early on, you can start bringing things up as a way not to test the relationship in a negative way, but to test what you actually have with that person. You need someone who can manage those conversations, handle those feelings that come up. And you need to be in a relationship where you guys together can talk about these things. And very often, and not very often, always, we're going to be creating the culture of our relationship from the beginning of the relationship. And how we deal with things tends to be the way we'll continue to deal with things. Are we the kind of people and the couple that's going to talk about things and share what's going on? Or are we going to be the couple that holds everything in, tries to avoid fights at any cost because we're afraid of what's going to happen and if we can handle these things? And so our fear of conflict takes over. And so in the last segment, I'll talk about fear of conflict and how it arises and how we can be aware of this and try to work on it for ourselves. Because if we're not able to face conflict, to face uncomfortable conversations, we can't have healthy and strong and happy relationships. So let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I'm going to talk about uh, fear of conflict or avoidance of conflict, which to me, it's similar to talking about fear of intimacy, which we sometimes talk about in this black and white way of you have a fear of intimacy or you don't, or you have a fear or avoidance of conflict or you don't. Um, but it makes sense to have some level of it, or we all have some. When it comes to intimacy, even getting close, it's always risky. So to say there's no risk or you have no anxiety or fear about it to me does not seem realistic for anyone, but we can recognize that we have some and people can differ in the degree they have and also in how they deal with that. If they're letting that fear dictate what they do so they avoid the intimacy or they avoid the conflict or they recognize it, but they go forward anyway. And so when we talk about being courageous or being brave, um, we're not saying you don't feel fear, but it's actually being afraid and going forward anyway, doing the action anyway. So uh, it makes sense to not like conflict. It's a, it makes people feel uncomfortable, uneasy, but we can have a huge difference in how much of that fear we have and how much of we avoid conflict and also how we deal with it. So like a lot of things, we first have to take an inventory of ourselves. How do I feel about conflict? What things come up for me? What do I feel? For many people, uh, conflict feels like the end of the world and they feel like end of the relationship, end of the world. It's very scary. They're very afraid of having a conflict. And so if they look back, they might recognize things from their childhood. What kind of conflicts did they see as a child? How would your parents fight? How would they fight with you? How would they deal with things? And unfortunately, conflicts are one of those things that most families have done a very bad job modeling for their kids. In most homes, we don't have a type of um, culture where things are brought up and dealt with in a calm, reasonable way that ends with a better result than before the conflict, which is really what we would want and what we should try to have. Of course, it doesn't mean every conflict is going to be this smooth, beautiful conversation that ends really well, but we would like for the majority to be that way or for that to be the mindset. What we tend to see in there's a relationship with how anger is dealt with is that in most homes, things aren't brought up, things are not brought up, and then there's a blow up explosion fight that's very scary. So what, what many children will observe is that their parents won't fight until they fight really bad. 
that they won't have some conversations about things that are dealt with in a good way that ends in a good place. But when it does come up, it becomes some ugly, scary thing. And so as a kid, and this is something so important for parents to realize, when their parents are fighting, you can feel like the world is about to end or that the, the world is threatening to end. And it's very scary for them. Um, sometimes I've worked with families and the parents will talk about a disagreement they had. And then when you look at the kid or you talk to the child, to them, it seemed like this really, really important, scary thing. Whereas for the parents, like, oh, yeah, we were just arguing about something that happened at dinner or whatever. It seems small to them. But we sometimes forget how scary it is for a child to see conflicts or when you raise your voice or when you say certain things or if one of you leaves the room or uh, leaves the house they might think you're never coming back these scary things can happen for the kids so we have to be aware of that as parents but also when we're looking at ourselves and how we view conflict to remember what it felt as a child now you might remember oh yeah they argued sometimes and we might tell ourselves where well, everyone argues sometimes but yeah what did you feel what do you remember experiencing as a child and again, most families, unfortunately, didn't have good experiences with conflict, uh, how their parents dealt with them and how they were dealt with with the kids, uh, between the kids and the, the parents. So we learn a lot of times from a young age that conflict is this scary thing and that we should try to avoid it at all costs. And we should try to make peace whenever we can, because the resulting conflict is too scary. So lots of times people learn that it's better to hold something in than have a conflict because if I hold it in, well, I have to just deal with some feelings inside and I can handle that. And maybe even I can start to forget those feelings or try to forget those feelings. But the alternative of actually talking is very scary and I don't want to do that. So we have to look at ourselves and see what is our own feeling when it comes to conflict. How much fear do we have? What are we afraid of? And sometimes these fears might seem kind of silly because you know, a lot of times the fear is actually when we look at it more deeply, you're afraid of losing the love of the person you fight with or losing them completely. You're afraid they're going to leave, even though logically or rationally, when you think about it, you know, they probably won't leave if you bring up some incident. But that fear is coming from this childlike place that's dealing with that fear of abandonment or fear of losing and doesn't want to let that happen. So, of course, when it comes to should I share that I didn't like you said something mean? And the alternative is maybe I lose you. You're like, well, it's easier just to hold it in. Why would I risk that? So we have to realize that risk and those alarms that go off inside our head and inside our bodies when conflict is arising. And that's kind of how it is. That fight or flight might kick in where you're so afraid of the conflict. You're like, well, why would I go into this? Why would I start this kind of fight that could end with a feeling of death, whether it's relationship death or something bad happening? It's easier not to bring something up. So we have to recognize that fear we have how much it is, what feelings come up, what thoughts come up, and, and start to unravel that. And so we need to do this inventory, explore that fear of conflict, read books on conflict. This book, Difficult Conversations, I think is a good one where it talks about having these difficult talks and how they're always going to be uncomfortable. So again, that fear of conflict or of that wanting to avoid conflict makes sense. If you actually like conflict and fighting, that might actually be coming more from anger, but it makes sense to actually not like it and recognize it's always going to be uncomfortable, but that can be okay. Just like a lot of things that we do, even though they might not feel good in the moment or might make us feel uncomfortable, but it could lead towards growth. We have to make sure we do it anyway. And so that's the other part that's very important is that we can think and reflect, take an inventory. That's all great, but we can't stop there. It's not like we can think our way through 
this problem or this issue, as is usually the case, we have to take some action, meaning we have to start to have some conflicts, take some risks. And so this means you're going to be in a moment and a lot of things or everything in your brain and body is going to say, go away from the conflict, but you have to go towards it. You have to say, you know what? I, I hear those alarm bells inside of me telling me to just don't have this fight, don't say something, but I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to say it. And so we might want to start with people that you feel more comfortable with. Think about someone who might not react in such a negative way or you're not as afraid of their reaction and start with them. Because what you're going to have to see is this thing that you're so afraid of is actually not that scary. And this is the case with any kind of anxiety or any kind of fear or phobia we're dealing with. It's not that we just logically get over it, that people say, okay, I have a fear of spiders and you sit in a room and someone tells you, you know, spiders, they're not dangerous. The spiders are not poisonous. They can't hurt you in any way. You have nothing to be afraid of. And the person's like, oh, you're right. Now I'm not afraid. Really the way it works is right now, when you think of a spider, your body goes crazy. Your brain goes crazy because it thinks it's such a bad thing, but you have to slowly expose yourself to that thing that's so scary and realize, oh, it's not that scary. And so similarly, you need to have some arguments, some disagreements with some people and realize, oh, the relationship doesn't end or they don't hate me and stop loving me or they don't uh, create a scene. Now, of course, some people do. <laughs> Realistically, some people are that way. So you might be around someone who can't handle conflict at all and again, this could be a red flag if it's a romantic relationship, maybe it's not the right person to be with, or if it's a family relationship that you can't be very close to them. So I'm not suggesting that conflict with everyone works all the time. Some people really can't handle it. And so you have to be aware of who you're dealing with. But just because some people can't handle it doesn't mean that many people can't or that you can't find people that will be able to handle the conflict and to discuss things and to actually have a better outcome. But again, you have to take that risk. It's the only way to get past something. The only way out is through. We have to actually start to experience things. Now, taking a step back, one of the reasons why people at times, there's many causes, it's not like it's one thing, but one other personal factor that might play a role in avoiding conflict is people won't really think that they matter very much or what they think or what they feel matters. And so we can say this might be related to something like self-esteem or how we value ourselves, but you might think, well, if I'm not good, if I don't have people think I'm nice and I'm being likable, no one is going to like me. No one will love me. So I'm only lovable when I don't create problems. And this could be related to childhood experiences that people have, but I'm only lovable when I make people feel good. I'm only lovable when I'm nice. I'm not lovable if I get upset or mad or say something I feel. So we learn that it's safer to put away our own feelings, to become more passive and to make sure everyone around us is happy and okay. And so this is why as parents, we have to be so aware of this very often we're so afraid of conflict, of disagreement, that we put a pressure on our kids to make sure they keep us happy or they show us they're happy and don't get upset. Oh, what are you upset about? There's nothing happened. Why would you be mad? Or why do you care about this? Or why do you have such a bad mood? Or why do you this or that? We might show them in different ways that don't have feelings that I don't like or don't say something I don't like. You should always make me feel good. And so the child starts to learn, okay, I can put away my own feelings and make sure my parent feels good. I want to make sure everything is calm and, 
and feels fine. And so they start to put that away. So you have to ask yourself, if I'm afraid of conflict, do I undervalue and undermine my own feelings or what I'm going through? Some people, it's interesting, we can have a hard time putting ourselves in other people's shoes. That's very common for many people. Unfortunately for other people, their problem is they have a hard time keeping themselves in their own shoes. They think about the other person's feelings only and not their own. So if they're going to have a disagreement, they start to just see the other person. Oh, well, I can see why he's upset, but they're not even in touch with, you know what? I'm upset too, or I don't like what they did and I want to tell them. And so for some people, it's actually a harder process of staying in their own shoes than uh, putting themselves in someone else's. So you have to look at your own issues of, do I not value myself? Do I not think people want to hear what I have to say? Do I feel like it's better to not say what I'm thinking or feeling and realize that as much as you might tell yourself you're easygoing, I hear this a lot. I really don't care about a lot of things. And you might not care about some things, but very often someone who describes themselves as easygoing might not be aware of all the feelings and thoughts they have that they're not in touch with themselves. They don't even realize they're upset until later on. So they keep doing something over and over again. They think, yeah, I don't mind. It's okay with me. But over time, they start to realize, actually, I don't like that. I keep doing this thing I don't like, but I'm actually doing it just to avoid a conflict or to make the other person happy. I'm being a people pleaser. I'm not doing what I want to do. So of course, this um, theme of being a people pleaser is very much related to avoiding conflict. If we want to make everyone around us happy, make them feel good, make them think we're nice, we're not going to have any conflicts with them. We're going to be afraid to bring things up because we'll lose that feeling of being the nice person. So we have to take the risks and have conflicts and we can hopefully have some good experiences where we realize you can talk about things we can talk about things and things become better. But many people don't have these types of experiences. Even if you look at uh, families in general, but you look at Iranian families, very often a fight happened 20 years ago and that those two people don't talk anymore. They don't actually get together to resolve the conflict. There's this feeling that if you had a fight, that's the end of the relationship. And I think that's very unfortunate. And so many times parents pass this on to their kids, that if you have a fight with someone, it's over. There's no getting back or making things better. We had a fight once 18 years ago because this one time your sister didn't invite this sister or invited that brother and didn't invite this sister and we're never talking again because of that. And that's very unfortunate because any kind of relationship that's going to last long enough is going to have conflicts, is going to have things come up. And so we have to be willing to embrace them to create a good relationship. You can't have a good relationship without some fights. You can't tell me we have a really, really good, solid, strong relationship. We've never had an argument. In a way, arguments are kind of those things that help you mold the relationship to become stronger. It goes through these growing pains and becomes stronger. So you have to recognize that if I'm afraid to have a fight with my partner, that's telling me something. And if I don't have a fight with them ever, something is wrong. And I need to be able to bring something up and let them know how I'm feeling. And we can slowly overcome our fear of conflict and our avoidance of conflict. Don't think of it as something that once you figure it out that conflict is good or listening to me talk about it, you should be able to just start doing it tomorrow. It's going to be a process. Slowly, um, as I mentioned before about exposure, you have to expose yourself and see, you know what? I had a conflict and it was okay. It probably won't feel good for you in the moment and it doesn't mean you'll look forward to it next time. But the good news is the more you do it and the more you see that it's not the end of the world or the end of relationships or doesn't make you bad and unlovable, the less scary it becomes. 
the more you expose yourself to something scary, the less scary it becomes. And that's the good news. If you take those initial risks, you can hopefully get there. And remember, the only way you can be close to someone and have a good relationship is if you're willing to embrace conflict and those difficult conversations. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Again, the book of the week is Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. A uh, big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We have a wonderful day.